I have in my pocket, I've kept in my wallet for years now, prison two euro coin. So in prison, you're not allowed to have uh, regular money, of course, in case you launder it, but I have here two euro prison coin. And the reason I kept it and didn't cash it in for two actual euros is because I can buy exactly two spinach pies the moment I go back to prison. Spinach pies are perhaps my favorite thing about Greece, and I'm really looking forward to it. That's Sean Binder, one of the founders of Free Humanitarians, who for his search, rescue and relief work on Lesbos has been arrested and accused of smuggling, espionage and money laundering. This funny story of two euro prison coin, which perfectly shows Sean's personality, was recorded by Refocus Citizen Journalist about a year ago when Sean returned to Lesbos for his first trial. But Sean is not the only humanitarian being prosecuted. Humanitarian action in Europe has been increasingly criminalized over the last years. France and Italy have forbidden citizens from giving food, water and shelter to refugees and migrants. Hungary passed the so-called Stop Soros law, criminalizing individuals and NGOs helping migrants claim asylum. Poland criminalizes aid at the Polish-Belarusian border. New Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni introduces maritime laws, making search and rescue operations extremely difficult. Not even mentioning the damages Matteo Salvini made. So, today we will tackle the issue of criminalization of humanitarian action, and to join me for this discussion is Sean Binder. Sean, welcome to Fractured. Going straight to business, you and Sarah Mardini, your friend, were arrested on charges of money laundering, people smuggling and espionage for providing search, rescue and relief services on the island of Lesbos. You spent, if I'm not mistaken, 106 days in pretrial detention uh, and the case remains ongoing. You faced 25 years imprisonment. Well, actually, are you still facing 25 years? We're speaking about two weeks after your trial on Lesbos. What was the outcome of that? Yeah, so what happened uh, two weeks ago is that the prosecution basically fell apart with regards to about half of the allegations against me. So I have been formally charged with espionage, forgery, and the illegal use of radio frequencies and all of those have now fallen apart because of the procedural mistakes made by the prosecution. Which means that about eight years of the 20-year total that was hanging over my head has now been wiped away, which means a remainder of 12 years exists if we are to be pressed with the further, much more serious felony charges, which, as you say, include facilitating illegal entry, being part of a criminal organization, and even money laundering. But the figure of 25 years um, was originally the figure. However, given that we've had such a long delay, we've been waiting for a trial in the, for five years now, the laws have changed, and it has now reduced to 20-year total. Is it the case also for Sarah and all the others who have been arrested with you? Sarah and I face verbatim charges, so yes. And then some others, other defendants, we are 24 in total, they do not face quite as many of the charges. And so therefore their, their sentence would be lower. It's worth noting that purely from a sentence point of view, this is terrifying for each yeah. one individual that you're supposed to have facilitated the legal entry for, you receive 10 to 20 years imprisonment. 
and the prosecution believes that we have facilitated the entry of thousands of people because we've searched and rescued thousands of people. So we're talking about, if found guilty, a sentence that will span into the coming centuries. So I believe this is the right moment to clarify a little bit what were you exactly doing uh, on Lesbos and what exactly happened that day back in 2018 when you were arrested. So if you don't mind leading us through uh, those events as well. Honestly, really not that much. I volunteered on the island of Lesbos for about 10 months. I joined a small Greek search and rescue organization called ERCI. And ERCI provided well, medical uh, interventions, both on land and at sea. We ran a medical clinic and we had two search and rescue vessels. And it was on those that I volunteered. But I think we often have this image that search and rescue is this very adventurous and... Um, incredibly high octane experience and that honestly doesn't reflect my time on the island most of the time I did very little I mostly handed out bottles of water or blankets or even just provided a smile because the vast majority of the people making this crossing have survived wars and conflict and don't need any further assistance however on occasion we did provide you know emergency medical aid uh, medical equipment and supplies and so it was it was a mix of, of activities and by and large we did this with the with the authorities who who were always called to scene, with whom I had worked shoulder to shoulder, and on occasions we provided them with training and equipment as well. I think it's important to kind of frame what an average day looks like, because what I've just described doesn't really give you that much indication. You know, from about midnight to 7am, I would be doing something called a, a night shift. And this is basically a shift where you stand with a first aid backpack on next to your Jeep, which is filled with medical equipment and ropes and what have you, looking out to sea on a cliff face that's maybe three or four meters above the waterline, looking out towards Turkey, and you're just listening. You're you're listening out for small boat engine sounds, for screaming or shouting, because this is the way that you will find out there's a boat in distress. This is how you will first know that people need your help, and this is from the point at which you're providing medical care. And it was a night like that I, in February of 2018 when Sarah, Mardini, and I were standing on this cliff face, maybe 3 or 4 a.m., looking out to sea when the police arrive, which is pretty normal because, again, you know, we've worked together for, for years at this point as an organization. And they ask for our passports. Again, this is pretty normal. But then they suggest that there's something unusual about the car. They suggest that there is something untoward happening, but they're not clear exactly what they mean by that. And they ask Sarah and me to join them to go with them back to the Coast Guard police station where we're detained for a night after being fingerprinted and photographed and searched. Our devices are taken, our home is searched, our warehouses are searched, and we're released after spending two days in a cell pending further investigation. We had no idea what this exactly meant. I mean, the police weren't particularly communicative about what was going on, and the prosecuting um, the prosecutor, the state attorney, who eventually released us pending further investigation, also was pretty vague as to what exactly they were looking for. And then we got some clarity about four or five days afterwards when one of the police officers had leaked a story to the to an online media outlet. And they ran with an article that said something like, German spy, that's me, and his Syrian accomplice arrested in a stolen military jeep trying to infiltrate a naval base to steal state secrets. And I thought, damn, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Incredibly cool. Because I thought this was a joke. 
Obviously, I'm not an international spy. Obviously, I hadn't stolen a Jeep. The Jeep we were driving, for example, was plastered head to toe in the organization's branding. And because it was a joke, I, we moved on. We, we kept working. We literally kept working with the same Coast Guard and police officers that had arrested us. But we found out that it isn't a joke. This is exactly the narrative that was forming around us. And over the six-month period that we continued working, had solidified into eventually a an official prosecution and we were charged with very serious crimes. We were held in pretrial detention uh, for three and a half months, as, as you said, because the crimes were so serious, they alleged that we were a flight risk or at risk of recommitting until we were eventually released on bail uh, approaching um, December or in December of 2018. And since then, we've been waiting in limbo until finally, two weeks ago, the prosecution finally managed to bring this to trial, at least half of it to trial, and it immediately fell apart because of the mistakes they made. This was the moment that probably changed the course of your life forever, uh, as I can imagine. Well, you definitely cared about human rights and issues related to the refugee um, crisis before, otherwise you wouldn't volunteer on Les of Us. But... You are just starting your professional career at the moment, right? Uh, you are 26, 27, right? Yeah. So when you were arrested, uh, you were a very young person. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the impact the criminalization of humanitarians has on their individual lives, but also on the situation of NGOs they work for. Yeah, sure. I think there's kind of two parts to that. And so the first one is... Uh, yes, I was 24 when I was first arrested, and I had no intention of becoming a human rights defender. I didn't, and I don't consider myself an activist. I think oftentimes when we use the term activist, it suggests that there are non-activists, and that kind of suggests that activism happens out there, over there somewhere, and that it absolves us all of our responsibility. I think actually what compelled me to go to volunteer is that one, I had the privilege of having the resources, the skills, and the time to be able to work at the shoreline. But I also think it's a it's a civic duty, like voting. Interesting. The, Europe is one of the wealthiest continents in the world. We have some of the deadliest seas in the world. But because we are so wealthy, that is a decision. We have decided to make the Mediterranean so deadly. And we've decided to do so via a package of border policies that are decided at the EU level. And I am an EU citizen. And therefore, what happens at our border happens in my name. And I, like most people, the vast majority of people, don't want people to die in my name. And so I think it's important not to frame as activism as something that happens over there. Helping people, ensuring they don't drown is a collective responsibility that I think we all share. And I think this links to the second part of what I wanted to say in response to your question, which is that the impact of my arrest on myself and me personally has been, of course, huge. It's changed the course of my life, as you suggested, and, and not in a good way. You know, I'm now, next year I'll be 30, and I want to, at some point, have a family. I want to work in, in a way that allows me to facilitate a family, but I don't think I can responsibly do that if, you know, I face over 10 years in prison. And while I would be very sad to go back to prison, that isn't the most frightening thing about all of this. 
The most frightening thing about all of this is that if I'm guilty of a crime because I helped somebody in distress, because I handed out bottles of water, or even just provided a smile at the shoreline, then the next time you help someone in distress or hand out bottles of water or even a smile, then you will be criminalized. And so it isn't me that's on trial. It is the rule of law. It is the existence of human rights themselves. And so we all stand to lose something. And we see this. The day after arrest on the island of Lesbos, there was no more civilian search and rescue. And today, after years of delay and uncertainty, the shadow of doubt over the legitimacy of search and rescue, which of course is actually legitimate, but the prosecution makes that less clear, has meant that there is no search and rescue happening on Lesbos in a civilian capacity at all. And we see that this chilling effect throughout the European Union. I mean, but whether there's you... also no search and rescue on the government level or EU level. There's no search and rescue. There's only pushbacks uh, at the European sea borders. Exactly. You know, if in the ideal world, there would be no need for search and rescue at all because people wouldn't be drowning. Yeah. Um, but in the world, in a better world, actually, there would be search and rescue happening by the authorities because yeah, I can admit that a 20 something year old civilian isn't the person who should be doing search and rescue. This should be done by the Coast Guard, by the Navy, by the authorities who should have well-equipped and resourced teams who can provide this kind of care. But we don't live in that better world. In the world in which we live, me as a 24-year-old had to provide resources to Frontex vessels. Frontex is one of the best-funded best EU institutions in Europe. I was contacted by medics on board a English or British uh, border force vessel called the Valiant, which was an operation at the time that I was on Lesbos, asking me, a 20-something-year-old, if I can provide them with equipment because they didn't have enough. In the world in which we live, the authorities don't provide and cannot provide the search and rescue necessary, and therefore there's a gap. And if that gap isn't plugged by civilian search and rescue, people will fall through it, mostly asylum seekers, and they will fall through it to their deaths. Well, you mentioned you made a good point that you are not the only humanitarians uh, who have been criminalized for providing aid. And when preparing for our conversation, I found some statistics. Uh, they give very different numbers as they cover different uh, time frames. They have slightly different methodology. But I was definitely shocked uh, by the numbers. And one of the reports said uh, that at least 89 people were criminalized in the EU between uh, January 2021 and 2022. And those are both ongoing cases and new cases. So your case is also one of them. And most most people believe that uh, the countries responsible for are usually Greece and Italy, because those are the cases that usually make news. But it's not only Greece and Italy. And what was really shocking to me uh, was one statistic that I found that says that the total of, and here this number, 972 people were convicted in Switzerland in 2018 only on grounds of uh, facilitation of irregular entry or stay. And those cases uh, happened, they went to trial, but the vast majority of them, almost 900 people, actually acted out of solidarity or family reasons. Right. So there, there was no money exchange for this. Uh, nothing really happened. People acted out just uh, out of solidarity uh, reasons. But 972 people in one year only uh, on charge of facilitating legal entry in Switzerland in one uh, country only. So 
the majority of uh, the cases, however, are very uh, likely to go uh, unreported, usually because of the fear that the media attention will just uh, make the situation worse. And in case of um, rescuers or humanitarians who have refugee background, uh, who have received their asylum and then decided to help, the probability of worsening the situation is even bigger. Your case uh, is obviously one of the high-profile ones, uh, but it's usually you, Sarah or Nassos, that we see in the media. Uh, what about the others uh, from your case? What is their situation and uh, what is their choice of not being uh, that vocal in media? Yeah, I want I, I want to definitely address that, but if I can just go back to the to the kind of the research and the preamble to that question. I think the 89 figure relates to the Greens EFA um, commissioned report, and it picks up where a previous uh, research project left off, which was with Rizoma, and I was part of the Rizoma research project, and we had calculated that there were, you know, just over 180 individual individuals um, in about 50 prosecutions in about 14 EU member states that um, where, where, where there was prosecution relating to the facilitation of illegal entry. So just one specific EU directive of 2002. Mm-hmm. And that ended 2019. So this build off of that. But the whole point is exactly to drive home the, the issue that it isn't an Italian or, or a Greek one. And I say that because the, the 89 figure and certainly the 100, 180 figure is blind to the other kinds of non-judicial forces that are exerted upon the civic space that diminish civic activity and humanitarian activity. For example, it's blind to the reports in camps or at shorelines where the police intimidate or harass. This is not captured by this data and it's presumably much larger. And then also on the on the um, Switzerland example, I think oftentimes we, because we, we're so polarized and because we view migration, we tend to view migration topics through a prism of fear and suspicion as a, as a general societal issue, I think. It's important to unpack what this 900 figure actually is by way of an example. I once received an email from a pastor from Switzerland called Norbert Valley. He had been prosecuted because during a storm, he opened up his church to asylum seekers so they could sleep on the church pews and be protected from the horrendous rain. And this was supposed to have been a crime. Now, eventually he was acquitted, of course, and a lot of these cases end in acquittal. The vast majority end in acquittal, at least with facilitation directive in mind. This is what's being criminalized here. It's not some nefarious gang across Europe that are profiting off people, as you say. These are individual acts of kindness that are not only morally right, but are sanctioned or are are permitted by the law. For example, I am being charged with, and most people who in this space are being criminalized are charged with facilitating illegal entry. Now, what the police have done, and this is completely counterproductive to their own argument, is they have said, John, you facilitated the entry of people who are exempt from illegal entry. That doesn't make any sense. You cannot illegally facilitate the entry of people who are exempt from illegal entry. And asylum seekers, by definition, are recognized as being individuals who cross borders irregularly otherwise illegally. And therefore, helping them cannot be a crime, at least if it's for a non-profit, uh, for a non-profit reason, as is recognized by the facilitation directive itself, which issues guidelines stating that humanitarian, religious and familial efforts to help people in distress while they're crossing a border should not be criminalized. 
And so it's not just a moral issue, but there's a legal backing to the work that we've done. Getting then to the to the, to the meat of your original question, which is, uh, you know, why is it why is it Sarah, uh, Nassos, and, and myself who are who are commonly seen? You know, there there are a number of reasons for this that I think have have fed in at different points. The first one is that it was originally Sarah and myself who were arrested, and the initial arrest I think was what was shocking. The initial pretrial detention is what gained the momentum around our case. I mean, it took us a while to get to the point where, you know, the United Nations, the EU, all major human rights organizations are calling for arrest, but the initial momentum came, or calling for our, for the dismissal of our release, but the original momentum came from our arrest, and that was Sarah and myself in Nassau. And so I think that's the key figures. The second thing is that the media prefers, I think, a simple story, and so they tend to focus on Sarah. Sarah is an existing um, public figure, and her arrest allows for a broader conversation around her her heroic story. And therefore, I think that's why the media focus on a smaller number of people, particularly Sarah. And then finally, we don't have an option. Our case became known pretty quickly, and our, our names became known pretty quickly. Those of the defendants who are not yet known to the public prefer not to be known, because it carries a lot of stigma. It carries a lot of pressure and uncertainty. And so I think the vast majority of people prefer not to be named. And then you have situations where people struggle to be named. You know, I have spent time in prison. I have shared cells with asylum seekers who are were criminalized for being supposed smugglers. Their crime is simply crossing a border and sitting at the back of the boat near the engine when they arrive at the European shoreline. We know that m most smugglers do not steer the boats or they jump out uh, at certain point uh, in the middle of the sea. So they force even people who have no idea how to steer boats to actually do it. Otherwise, um, like die on the sea or, or go back to Turkey. Exactly. We're, we're criminalizing asylum and survival, mm. basically. And But my point isn't that as such. It's more to say that no one knows about these cases. Uh, these are these are people who don't even have access to lawyers, in, in my experience. Uh, there is no way of getting their message out. And so, unfortunately, and I feel a certain amount of guilt for this, or I do feel guilty about this, but the, you know, the inequalities that that govern our external border reproduce themselves even in the solidarity and anti-criminalization movements that are supposed to oppose them. And that has been a real struggle. I mean, look, I am, and I know... I know your work is is far more on the ground and grassroots, but I take this as an example of of other media engagements. You know, I'm I'm provided this platform, I'm given an opportunity to speak, whereas most platforms are not extended as far as asylum seekers themselves, unless they've gone through this, you know, impossibly heroic journey like Sarah, at which point now, yes, we're interested in hearing her story. But if she hadn't had an Olympic swimmer as a sister, if she hadn't made that original originally massive sacrifice in front of a camera, then it wouldn't be known. Plenty of asylum seekers make incredible sacrifices and are not known. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, let's just first maybe uh, mention Sarah. Um, her The movie about her and her sister, The Swimmers, is on Netflix right now, so everybody uh, can watch it. Uh, and it tells uh, a very brave story of, of both sisters and how they came uh, to uh, Lesbos and, and the horrible situation they found themselves in. Um, which we're which we're talking about the the fact that not that many um, 
refugee um, rescuers uh, are in media, it, it is. It was actually, for example, for me, very difficult to find a list of all the other people who are on trial with you. It's you, Sarah, and Nasos everywhere. Uh, I, it was a really deep search to find uh, the other names. But uh, yes, I reached out to you as one of the spokesperson uh, for the issue. But I also realized that many people who have refugee background and find themselves in this situation are much are very very scared to speak to media and it's not not only in a search and rescue and criminalization situation if you uh, talk to people about issues in camps uh usually the, we very frequently see the same individuals speaking about the, those things. Uh, people who really are not afraid, people who feel like it's a huge injustice that is happening. But refugees are much more scared than um, non-refugees to speak about those issues. And rightfully so. The, their access to legal support is is extremely minimal. They cannot afford to hire a private lawyer to take care of their cases. So uh, I, I, th this is one of the struggles that we have with uh, refugee presence in media. And actually, this is what we're trying to do uh, here with the podcast. Also, we will have um, we have actually a newsroom with um, refugees right now, but not that many of them want to, for example, host the show. Hopefully it will change very soon because we will have Iranian voices included but just to make a point. And um, switching the topic a little bit, uh, you actually started mentioning the uh, infamous um, facilitators package. And maybe just to clarify a little bit, this is an EU law um, that was introduced in 2002. And this is the main legislation to tackle people smuggling. This was the original goal. But contrary to the United Nations protocol on uh, smuggling, uh, it 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 is a bit different and the difference is actually uh, significant uh, because uh, it does not require the existence of the motivation of uh, material benefit for an act to count as smuggling so in simpler words because what the Re european union did they added an um, a so-called humanitarian exception uh, which is optional but not mandatory uh, do I understand well? And is this also one of the reasons it is so easy right now to criminalize humanitarians? Yeah, exactly. So I think the way that member states get around this humanitarian ex exception, assuming that they have in fact ratified a, a, a discretionary exemption clause, which some states simply haven't done. But for example, Greece has done it. There is an exemption clause. And so what they have simply done to get around it is say, well, these aren't humanitarians. These are not bona fide humanitarians. These are, in fact, smugglers. These are, in fact, criminal gangs, which is hence the plethora of other charges that I also face. Our difficulty, of course, or their difficulty, of course, is, is proving any of that, which is really quite difficult. Uh, we are clearly bona fide humanitarian. Yeah, th that is the difference between the UN legislation and the the. Um, the, the UN protocols on the issue, the humanitarian exemption does exist, but it's discretionary. We've had a, quite a long lobbying campaign, some release from my imprisonment until about 2020. I worked with various think tanks and, you know, policy research focused institutions in and around Brussels to try and push for change here. And when I met the Commission Home Affairs folks 
the people who legislate on this issue, who write the um, who write the legislation on this issue, they seem pretty intransigent on the matter. For the first question was, you know, we don't see a connection between the criminalization of humanitarian action and this legislation. This is an issue at the member state level, and that's why we went off and did this research that I told you about, where we found these. 180 individuals in 14 member states to say, look, no, this is actually connected specifically to this legislation. And that's why this needs to be hardened. We need to have a non-discretionary exemption clause, a, a, a mandatory discretion clause. And then they said, well, do you really want to review it now? Because 2002, <laughs> the humanitarian issue, the migration question wasn't nearly as toxic as today. If we review it now on the floor, we will have worse legislation possibly and so what was issued was eventually just guidelines to the exemption clause um guidelines just reiterating the need to not prosecute bona fide humanitarian assistance and i think included in that is is um religious and familial exemptions too but i'm not entirely certain mm-hmm. um John- uh, taking a step back, uh, I would like to speak a little bit about um, the local community on Lesbos, but also Lesbos-like uh, places. Um, so you got a, a huge support from all humanitarian organizations. Um, all the, the ones working on Lesbos uh, showed solidarity with you. Uh, the big ones, um, I'm actually not sure about UNHCR, but for sure... Um, uh, ERC or um, or Amnesty International also called for dismissal of all charges uh, against you. Uh, but the just the fact that you were um, charged with something as serious as espionage and um, being a human trafficker um, is something that really complicates and complicates further maybe relations on um, such in small such places as Lesbos, for example, as as all those islands, where the relations between locals and NGOs and refugees were very very complicated for a long time. Uh, how have you been received by locals coming back to the trial this time and last year when the trial was uh, postponed and? Do do you see any change really happening right now? The numbers uh, of refugees who arrive to the island are much uh, smaller. Do you think that this is one of the main reasons of possible uh, change of the situation and relations between locals and NGOs? I think they probably are both symptomatic of something deeper, yes. It's worth noting that when I have these conversations, people often frame i think greeks in general or lesbians in particular as being somehow more racist or more problematic or more hell-bent on the destruction of human rights principles and i push very firmly against that notion i don't think that's true for example lesbos has itself a, a not a very recent but a relatively recent history of population exchange and refuge vis a vis Turkey that happened. And so it was primed at the outset of the so-called migration crisis to provide care in a way that felt more empathetic and than, say, other responses. And rightly, I think Lesbos was awarded or award-winning for that solidarity. And attitudes, I think, hardened in part because there was insufficient help being provided by Athens to the islands. We saw the, you know, the hotspot policies 
which are effectively island lockdown policies where transit is, is made more difficult further into into Athens and beyond, which is really where people wanted to go. And that is itself a microcosm of the similar Dublin Three policies that lock people to the border states, made them disproportionately responsible for the so-called migration crisis. And so I think attitudes soured and became more bitter over time. And so where once, you know, and people still do, you know, local Taverna owners opening up their doors and providing care and water to people in distress. When you've lost your living, when things have become more difficult for you, when you feel like you haven't gotten the amount of help that you deserve, as I think as of us, as of us could rightly complain they didn't, then it opens you up to, well, viewing the issue through the prism of problems. And who is part of that problem? Well, it is asylum seekers themselves, and it is people who help them. And so over time, these narratives took hold. This coincides with a growth of the smuggling narrative, which replaced the humanitarian narrative at the wider EU level. What I mean by that is, for example, in 2015, at the beginning of this so-called crisis, the European Union's response was one of humanitarian action. It viewed this problem rightly as an issue of people losing their lives in the Mediterranean. And so we responded to it with Mara Nostrum and other search and rescue focused official responses, at least more than we do today. And in fact, it was quickly replaced by Frontex operations that do not now focus on the issue of loss of life. They focus on the issue of smuggling. And so it re reframes everything that happens at our borders, the civilian search and rescue, the asylum itself, as part of the smuggling story, rather than as part of a humanitarian story. And the change of attitudes, given the hotspot policies and Dublin 3, with the rise of the smuggling and border enforcement narratives, really made for quite a hostile environment towards asylum seekers in particular, and then those people who help them in general. And we have seen that in, in these kinds of prosecutions, which have grown over time. Having said that, I think there probably has been, I'm not sure if to call it an improvement, there has been a, a blinding or a hiding of attitudes. It's not quite as visceral as it once was. So when I left the island in 2018, there was some hostility in the form of a growing narrative, as I said, in criminalization. By 2019, 2020, we saw literal hooligans and thugs destroying the cars and property of people who were in solidarity, of marching against the police, of, you know, instigating real violence. And that, I think that was a peak of the, I guess, disorganized or chaotic anger towards this problem. And in some ways, it hasn't improved, but it has shifted to a more organized hostility towards migration and asylum. And what I mean by that is pushback policies are unseen. And so it doesn't seem like violence is happening on those islands, but it is. It's just hidden. And that has grown over time much, much more. I guess what I've tried to draw out here in the eight years of history that I understand European border policies to, to some degree is a change of narratives away from what it should have been human rights, people shouldn't be drowning, the rule of law, to increasing hostility and manifestations of anger, whether in politics, so we see the rise of the far right, for example, and through kind of bureaucratic processes like the euphemistically called pushbacks, which which are, you know, in practice, these are kidnappings and unlawful returns. Oh, yes, they are. And if you think about this, like, if somebody would write a novel about something like this happening, you'd never believe that this is actually happening in happening in the name of the European Union, right? That this could be really some 
lawless state that provides um, actions like this. Just on that point, if, if we have a couple of moments to talk about it, it's it's for me worth pointing out that because at this point, if 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 you've heard what I've said so far, you could say, OK, I agree with that, John. But you could also be like, well, you know, smuggling is a problem. Smuggling is isn't good and we should be trying to stop it. And so what I have said so far doesn't really address that. And it, it, it suggests that actually, you know, I'm some I'm a liberal snowflake. I completely agree with that. I am a liberal snowflake. I'll be honest. But I'm not naive, or perhaps not as naive as people who say that our focus should be on smuggling think I am. Even if you accept that counter-smuggling policies are important, and let me tell you, I, more than most people, have seen the conditions that people are smuggled in, and I can completely understand that, and I agree that smuggling is an awful practice. I mean, I have helped little children out of boats who are clutching onto empty water bottles stitched into high visibility fabric to give the illusion of security. I mean, these are very cynical industries that are really profiting off people's hardship and misery. And even so, the policies of today are not actually helping. Not only are they morally wrong and are they legally wrong, because they don't provide humanitarian assistance as they're supposed to, but they're also internally wrong. They don't work. Counter-smuggling policy actually creates the industry of smuggling. And so even if you wanted to stop the smuggling, the way we're going about it right now doesn't work. And this is for three simple facts. I don't think it's controversial to say that. Number one, wars exist. Wars exist and people try to flee them, as is their right. Number two, that manifests through the process of seeking asylum. And it is a legal fact that to be an asylum seeker, you need to be in the would-be host country's territory to avail of protection. I need to cross a border. And fact number three is that, as I've said before, since 2015, we've shifted our policies from helping people to making that journey more difficult. For example, we now have attack dogs at our borders. We have fences going up at our borders, land borders. The safest way, the cheapest way to allow people to avail of their right to seek asylum is to allow them to walk across that border. But we don't do that. We harden our border. We have attack dogs. These three facts come together for only one possible outcome. The only way for people to seek asylum because they're fleeing war is to be pushed into the hands of smugglers. And who's pushing them into the hands and boats of smugglers? EU border policies. And so on every level, it doesn't make any sense. Well, you started the topic I wanted to close with, meaning where are we going with all of this? Meaning us as um, Europe. I I I think uh, maybe maybe I'm too optimistic, but I think the worst is maybe maybe uh, behind us because for me as a person who worked in a field, I haven't seen anything worse than uh, the pre-COVID time on Lesbos when uh, the attacks on humanitarians, physical attacks, were on an extremely high level, uh, and then COVID when okay, COVID a little bit helped mitigate that uh, physical risk, but the COVID um, rules were used to limit access to reception facilities, uh, detention centers, people couldn't contact their lawyers, doctors, uh, to impose fines on organizations providing uh, services during lockdowns, and so on and so on. So you speak a lot um, at very important, in event, very important um, places like European Union, European Parliament specifically. Uh, do you 
have this feeling as well that uh, maybe the worst is behind and now pushing the legislation is what really can help improve the situation. Are you anyhow optimistic in this uh, area or are you on the skeptical side? Um, that's a good question. And what I mean by that is I don't have an answer to that. If we take stock of where we're going, I think the direction of travel is still concerning. I don't think things have improved. I think that, as I said before, I, I think we've had a shift of the kinds of border violence or, or, or aggression that we see against migrants and the people who help migrants. As I said before, I think, and as you identified, you know, we had actual attacks. You know, a friend of mine had her car literally attacked uh, and was them, were themselves literally attacked by people. That is and seems more frightening than what's happening today because it is visceral, it is immediate, it is happening in a way that we understand violence to be happening and we have proof of it. Unfortunately, and I think more nefariously, that has shifted to something that is unseen. And therefore, it doesn't feel quite as extreme, but pushbacks are extreme. I mean, ex extreme to a level that is outrageous. I mean, we're talking about, there are stories I won't get into because it's ongoing issues that, I'm, that anyway, this stories, if you want to do any research into it, are outrageous what happens, as, as you will know, but perhaps as the listeners might not, regarding pushbacks and the violence that is now unseen. I think the direction of travel, therefore, is frightening because it is becoming more secretive and therefore more hidden. And at the same time, public discourse on the matter hasn't softened to the extent that you'd hope it would. We are heading into an election cycle in, at the EU level. I think we can expect to see migration be a polarizing issue and probably a core issue in the upcoming elections. And we see that in, in national member states. We see a rise of, you know, where, you, where you'd expect, I guess, to some extent, you'd expect to see a the rise of the right in Italy, given the 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 amount of migration that's happening there, this is going to be a polarizing topic, and Georgia Maloney is a manifestation of, of some of those issues. And um, we also will see um, elections happening in Greece, for example. And again, migration might might feature heavily, but even in places like um like Sweden as well, uh, the far right has has risen. And if the far right hasn't risen, then the centrists have taken a step to the right, at least on the issue of 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 border policy. And that is also concerning. I am heartened. And where I see a hope of glimmer is that, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking for a utopian world in which Europeans and the world can sit around a giant campfire and sing Kumbaya, a campfire that wouldn't be very sustainable, around a candlelit vigil singing Kumbaya. I don't have those kinds of extreme views. My, my views are actually pretty mundane. I think almost to the point of being banal. What I ask for is that the European Union follow its own goddamn laws. And that isn't a controversial statement. And I think, therefore, my ask isn't all that difficult to achieve. And therefore, I'm somewhat optimistic. All the laws already in our favor. It is simply a matter of applying them. The flip side of that coin is it speaks to the fear that I have, because if we can't even follow our own laws, then where are we going? So I'm in a I'm in a place of limbo and uncertainty. But what I know is that we need to keep going. And what I know is that what we're doing is not only morally right, but legally required. So here we have it to end the podcast from Sean. You follow your goddamn laws. Thank you very much, Sean, for um, being with us today. And good luck with the future trial. Thank you. I'll need it. Thank you for listening to Fractured. Our podcast is produced by Refocus Media Lab's citizen journalists from Afghanistan, Iran, Ukraine, and many other countries. It is partly financed by Alliance Foundation and Choose Love. 
However, it is thanks to donations from individual people like you that we can continue our mission of teaching media skills to refugees and asylum seekers and give them a platform to showcase their work. So if you value this podcast and our work, please support us on refocusmedialabs.org forward slash donate.